0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: The Western coalition supporting Ukraine in its war with Russia has so far been thought to be solid and reliable. But there may be vulnerabilities in that support, even as Russia seems to be in disarray on the battlefield and elsewhere. It's been believed all along that Vladimir Putin would use his control over oil and gas resources on which Europe depends to assert leverage over the West in the conflict, and heating costs are indeed rising just as the cold weather is descending. The U.S. is less affected by the vicissitudes of energy supplies, but they're hardly immune to these concerns either. How are Americans and others viewing the Ukraine-Russia conflict now? How long will their support hold up? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Marcus Stanley, who is the advocacy director of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Prior to joining the Quincy Institute, he spent a decade at uh, Americans for Financial Reform, where he played a leadership role in policy formulation and advocacy to reform regulation of the US financial system. Before that, he was an economic and policy advisor to Senator Barbara Boxer as a senior economist at the US Joint Economic Committee. While there, he produced uh, war at any price, a seminal study on the full costs of the Iraq invasion that was used to build political support to end the US role in the war. He has a Ph.D. in public policy from Harvard with a focus on economics. Thanks so much for
0: joining us today, Marcus Stanley. Thanks for inviting me. Great to have you. So uh,
1: we're having this conversation because uh, you had Data for Progress conduct a poll for the Quincy Institute assessing Americans' attitudes towards the Ukraine-Russia war. That suggests American support for the ongoing conflict may be more limited than, it seems to me anyway, than was previously thought. What did the, the poll find?
0: Well, I, I have to disagree a little bit with your framing um, of, of both the poll and um, the sort of introduction um, where you discussed whether whether American support will hold up. Uh, for Ukraine. This, this poll was really fo- not focused on support for Ukraine. Uh, we, we actually, uh, I think, were in line with previous polls and finding uh, substantial public support for uh, Ukrainian resistance to the Russian invasion. Uh, but what this poll uh, did that I don't think any other poll of the U.S. population has done so far is it asked about Uh, public support for efforts at diplomacy and negotiation uh, to try to reach a peaceful solution uh, in the war. Um, Right now, we are pumping weapons into the Ukrainian conflict, uh, where, as you say, the Ukrainians uh, have done and continue to do very well in defending their country from Russia's illegal invasion. Uh, but we do not have uh, a diplomatic or negotiations track uh, to try to reach a ceasefire or bring this war to a peaceful conclusion. And what we found in this poll is that there's very strong support uh, for trying to open that diplomatic track um, to try to actually engage with Russia uh, diplomatically and through negotiations between the United States and Russia uh, to try to uh, avert some of the more extreme outcomes that could uh, result from this war, you know, up to and including uh, potential nuclear conflict. And we found a very strong public support uh, for negotiations and and talks with Russia uh, by a margin of 20 plus points uh, among the public. Uh, but again, I do think it's important to um, to say that this was not counterposed to uh, support for Ukraine. the the uh, The idea of engaging to try to reach a ceasefire and a peaceful solution is not something that contradicts support for Ukraine. It's something that uh, complements support for Ukraine and has the potential of sparing uh, Ukraine more death and devastation in this war.
1: Right. Um, But one of the findings, if I understand correctly, was that people uh, want to see a negotiated solution sooner rather than later, even if that entails uh, that Ukraine makes some concessions to Russia. And I guess one question is, you know, is that not, I mean, that seems to me in some sense, a kind of, you know, backing off to some degree from uh, the sort of full-throated support for Ukraine and, you know, in its defense of its territory and sovereignty and that sort of thing. Uh, But maybe you could clarify, uh, since I didn't really see it in the report, um, what exact concessions are you know, indicated or suggested there. Insofar as you know, I mean that the, I think the uh, question was simply framed around the idea of concessions to Russia. You know, if necessary.
0: Well, there were a number of questions on diplomacy. That was one that that uh, asked hypothetically, would it be worth? Uh, trying to reach diplomatic solution, even if some concessions were involved. And we continue to find a strong public margin for that. Um, there was no discussion of what those, or there there was no specification in the poll of, um, of what those concessions might be. I think, um, the, the fact is that especially when a country has, um, uh, defined a conflict as as sort of an existential conflict critical to its um, to its s- sort of national security interest as Russia clearly has, especially in this this recent mobilization. Uh, diplomacy and the effort to reach um, a negotiated solution uh, generally involves compromise and concession on both sides, at least to some degree. Um, in, in this case, I don't think that Ukraine should be uh, making concessions around its uh, independence or core issues of national sovereignty. I think Ukraine has decisively defeated Russia's attempt to conquer Ukraine and uh, eliminate its independence. And I don't think Ukraine should be making any concessions around that. Um, but there are uh, issues around Ukrainian neutrality, uh, membership in NATO, um, other kinds of, uh, of issues that, um, that may come up. And also, frankly, uh, even if Ukraine does not uh, make territorial concessions, uh, it may be necessary to keep some of these territorial issues open, like, for example, the status of Crimea. Um, uh, open or unresolved, in order to reach a ceasefire or reach peace. I mean, the bottom line is that in any uh, diplomatic uh, engagement where you're not simply demanding unconditional surrender, um, there are concessions and compromises that are involved, and that's what we were gesturing towards. I see. In that question, I see.
1: Um, so another uh, finding of the survey, again, if I understood correctly, was that people, uh, roughly a majority uh, Amer- of Americans, are finding that um, they think, anyway, that their own financial situation is affected uh, negatively by the, you know, by the war. Um, is that indeed, you know, you were understanding that people are, you know, taking this into their calculations because? It seems to me, you know, as I said in my introduction, we're relatively immune—not totally, of course—but to some degree immune uh, from a lot of these kinds of considerations. Certainly, compared to the Europeans who are dependent on uh, European uh, on Russian uh, oil and gas and such
0: things. Well, we we did, um, as I said, find um, yeah, it's it's a bit of a of a mixed bag. Um, people do support Ukraine and the responses in this, uh, poll. Um, and the majority say that they're concerned about the invasion and the war. Um, but, uh, the level of support does go down when you ask people if there's, uh, an economic cost to be, um, to be paid. Um, so, um, so, for example, um, the um, when when higher gas prices and a higher cost of goods uh, in the U.S. are mentioned, uh, people's support goes down, and uh, actually, a majority of respondents uh, oppose aid to Ukraine if they believe that that uh, the cost will be greater inflation in the U.S. and um, that sort of accords with people identifying uh, the economy and inflation as uh, an extremely important issue for them, uh, which which also came up in the poll, um, and uh, y- you know people um, people defined uh, the economy um, or um, people defined inflation actually. Uh, as, as one of the most important issues to them. Many more identified inflation as a critical issue to them uh, than identified uh, the war in Ukraine as a critical issue. In fact, only 6% of the population said that, uh, or 6% of respondents to the poll um, said that uh, the Russian war in Ukraine was one of the top three issues facing the country today, whereas 46% said inflation uh, was one of the top three issues facing the country today. So um, we've seen some decline in gas prices after the initial spike uh, around the initial invasion. Um, and it's sort of unclear what the effect on energy prices is going to be of an, in the U.S. of an ongoing war. I mean, we know that the, there's a massive effect on energy prices in Europe of this war uh, but in the U.S., it's, uh, it's less clear. But uh, I do think that it came up in the poll that people are very concerned about kitchen table issues uh, like inflation and taxes uh, more so than, um, than the war in Ukraine.
1: Right. So they have what might, one might call a kind of rational uh, attitude about this. It's not affecting us, you know, directly anyway, as much as it is Europeans. Uh, certain Right. Seems the to things be the that are
0: affecting, they perceive as affecting them personally, are more important to them.
1: Exactly, exactly. So uh, as you sort of hinted, I think a minute ago, um, Russia's forces and its military posture have been portrayed in recent uh, days as in disarray and with growing domestic uh, unrest and discord back in Russia. Um, Yet this has been seen as potentially pushing Vladimir Putin into a dangerous corner, and there's more talk about, as you've also done, you know, sort of the worry about a possible nuclear uh, nuclear conflict. I mean, how do you think Americans are interpreting what's going on on the battlefield?
0: Um, well, I think that um, the war, for those of us who are, uh, you know, follow foreign policy and so on, we're, we're following this very closely. Uh, and there's no question that Ukraine is showing impressive successes on the battlefield, uh, but at the same time, uh, Russia appears to be responding by greatly increasing its combat power and uh, that it's devoting to this uh, this war, uh, and also amplifying its its rhetoric and at least its rhetorical commitment to the conflict uh, to the point where. I think one uh, can really be concerned about what the next steps on the escalation ladder could be, uh, both for Ukraine and even for the United States as well. Um, Russia uh, mobilized uh, 300,000 uh, in a partial mobilization and is has you, you know considerably more that it appears to be uh, preparing to mobilize, and even that first 300,000. Is going to more than double the combat power uh, that it has in Ukraine, uh, and it also uh, has been threatening uh, more direct attacks on uh, on Ukraine, uh, ramping up its war economy internally, and even making nuclear threats if um, if other countries intervene. Uh, so the Russian rhetoric seems to clearly indicate that they view this as a a critical matter of their national security, and they're going to respond at least to the foreseeable future by escalating this war instead of backing down. Um, if um, if things continue uh, to go badly for them, um, and the the Ukrainians, you know, to the, the credit of their courage, you know, are willing to uh, run some of those risks to take back their territory. Clearly. Uh, but I think that it increases the importance of opening uh, a diplomatic channel to prevent some of those uh, more extreme outcomes, as I said, up to and including nuclear war, and try to reach a ceasefire or a peaceful uh, diplomatic solution for this war. And one that preserves uh, Ukraine's uh, independence as a nation, since, as I said, Uh, the Ukrainians with United States' help have definitively defeated Russia's attempt uh, to conquer them completely.
1: So where do diplomatic efforts stand? I mean, for a time, Mr. Erdogan in Turkey was kind of overseeing or facilitating some kind of uh, discussions, but one doesn't hear much about diplomatic uh, efforts at the moment. I mean, are you aware of what's going on? What's happening?
0: Well, we've been going somewhat backwards. You're right. I mean, early in the war in March and April, it appeared that uh, Ukraine and Russia were close to an agreement or had even sort of informally uh, decided to pursue an agreement that was based on uh, the idea that uh, Ukraine would become a neutral nation, not join NATO, uh, would receive security guarantees. Uh, from uh, various countries on the UN Security Council and the territorial issues would be uh, postponed. Uh, The final settlement of the territorial issues would be postponed, but there would be a ceasefire based on uh, Ukrainian neutrality. Um, And then it appears that uh, the West there was a sort of a, a combination of factors of uh, the West, the UK especially apparently actually discouraged Ukraine from going ahead with that agreement. Uh, and also when the Russians retreated from the area around Kiev, uh, there were uh, apparent war crimes found that sort of um, uh, lessened the willingness of the Ukrainians to reach a compromise. Uh, and since that point, uh, the Russians have continued to say that they are open uh, to negotiation, but at the same time, they've uh, done these moves like annexing more of Ukraine that make negotiations more difficult. Uh, we've, we've had some limited diplomatic successes. We've uh, had an agreement concluded to export grain uh, from Ukraine over the Black Sea that was mediated by Turkey. Um, We had, even in this very, very sort of fiery and extreme speech that Putin made um, announcing the annexation of this Ukrainian territory, he brought up diplomacy and negotiations and referenced the fact that they had almost reached an agreement in March uh, and said Russia remained open to negotiation, but not over these territories they're annexing. So that makes it much more difficult, but I, I don't think that Putin, in the midst of this very extreme speech, would have been uh, mentioning diplomacy and negotiation if Russia wasn't open to the idea of talks. Um, and on the Ukrainian side, they've they've moved away after talking about the necessity of diplomacy early in the war. Uh, they have really moved away from possibility from from talking about um negotiations in fact um the ukrainians said uh just last month that the russians had reached out to them for negotiations and they had rejected uh the possibility um but i think the first step here is the u.s uh talking to russia because so many of the issues in this war like russia conceives itself as involved in a proxy war with the u.s and nato they they don't I, I think they don't really conceive themselves as involved obviously they are involved in a war against ukraine but fundamentally they believe that the u.s is uh the main threat to their security and the u.s is is uh from their perspective driving this conflict so uh step one in trying to lay the groundwork. Uh, for a potential agreement, I think, is the U.S. talking to Russia about uh, what might be possible. And we have not been doing that at all. There is no diplomatic track from the U.S. side. We've been very successful in, um, you know, supporting the Ukrainian military and arming the Ukrainians and helping, uh, really actually helping with command and control of the Ukrainian military in terms of the intelligence we give them. And helping to plan their, um, their activities. But we have not paired that military effort with, with any diplomatic uh, effort with Russia. Uh, because, in, in part, I, I feel like uh, a lot of people in DC feel, um, you, you know, let's see how far we can drive this, let's see how much we can weaken Russia. You know, we've, we've had this success in uh, defeating Russia on the battlefield, working with Ukraine to defeat Russia on the battlefield. Uh, the United States has spent a lot of money, but we have not, you, you, you know, had to commit our own troops to do it. Uh, we've weakened Russia, which is a geopolitical goal of the United States. Uh, and let's see how far we can push this thing. Uh, and I actually I think that's, uh, you know, how far we can push this thing without uh Opening that diplomatic track, and I actually think that's uh, quite dangerous because, uh, sure, we've had success so far, but uh, if you cross a red line, you know, you don't know until you've you've crossed it uh, whether you've crossed that dangerous line uh, involving some form of escalation that's going to be, you know, even more destructive to Ukraine that's going to draw in the U.S. or NATO. Uh, that could involve sabotage of infrastructure or, as I said, even escalation to a nuclear conflict. So uh, we have weakened Russia. We've defeated Russia's initial war. We've worked with Ukraine to defeat initial Russia's initial war goals. We've shown up the Russian military as much weaker than anyone thought. Um, and I think that this is a time where rather than pushing on to try to you know, achieve regime change in Russia or overthrow the Russian government, we need to think about what kind of settlement uh, would work to defend the independence of Ukraine and defend uh, European security without doing even more damage in this war.
1: Interesting. So... So uh, this is, to me, a very different interpretation of Putin's speech than, you know, has been generally reported. That is to say, you know, as you suggested, it's mainly been seen as this kind of, uh, you know,
0: declaration of antagonism to the West. And that's what well, really, is that. I'm, I'm yeah. it is that I'm not contesting that it is that it was a very radical speech. I'm right. I'm just saying for that for the issue of diplomacy and negotiations to come up twice in a speech like that, uh, indicates, you know, that that's that's a bit of a signal that's on his
1: mind. Right.
0: He's mentioning it twice. Yeah. Right.
1: So I, I just hadn't seen that reported at all, which seems, you know, uh, an interesting and significant fact in terms of the you know, interpretation that you're advancing generally. I mean, because in the aftermath of that speech, in the aftermath of their battlefield woes and mobilization and all, uh, you know it's generally it seems to me has been said that you know clint uh Putin always you know escalates that's his m o uh and you know we should look for him to escalate in this context but what you're saying is that there seems to have been a kind of uh, not an olive branch but a kind of opening in that speech to uh you know a diplomatic track which as you say is not really happening now i mean that's That, to me, as I say, was a kind of significant addition to the, uh, you know, to our understanding of what that what what he was saying in that in that speech.
0: Yeah. And you probably also didn't see the coverage uh, just uh, just in mid-September, where uh, the Ukrainian deputy prime minister said that uh, Russia had informally reached out to them for negotiations. Uh, that also was not really covered in the U.S. We've we've kind of seen a, um, a v- very much a sort of one note propaganda barrage in in uh, in the U.S. Uh, that doesn't really even raise uh, diplomacy as a possibility in this this uh, war.
1: Right. So. Uh, I mean, you've offered an interpretation of this speech, which to me is novel and interesting and important. Um, But as we get into the winter, I mean what do you think is going to happen? I mean, there's been a lot of talk about how you can't fight wars so much in the winter and in that part of the world. And, um, you know, that we're likely to get into a kind of frozen conflict sort of situation. Is (laughs) that how you see it? Yeah, literally. Exactly.
0: No, no, I I think it's, you know, I'm not going to guess what happens on the battlefield. I mean, once the ground freezes, you can do, um, there's offensive operations that you can do. I, I think, um, the U.S. so far has been pretty insulated from the immediate fallout of this war, uh, obviously, as compared to Ukraine, and but also as compared to Europe. I think um, in the winter, uh, the, the biggest impact is going to be on Europe and also Ukraine, if Russia strikes at Ukrainian energy infrastructure that uh, provides heat. But Europe is facing, you know, uh, disastrous economic outcomes here economically from the cutoff of Russian gas. Uh, and I think the Russians were sort of counting on potentially driving a wedge between uh, some of the uh, NATO allies in the United States on this war and having some of the NATO allies potentially... Uh, pressuring, at least behind the scenes, for uh, for a diplomatic solution uh, if Russia would, would resume gas deliveries. But the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines has really kind of thrown a wrench in that Russian strategy because uh, basically Russia had those pipelines loaded up with a whole bunch of gas that they could have started to provide to Europe at the touch of a button. So they, during the winter, they could have made the offer to Europe, uh, you, you know, start a diplomatic process with us, and we will turn on the gas for you uh, right away. And within you know a week, you'll see assistance for your population and your economies. Uh, but now that those pipelines have been have been sabotaged, uh, that Russian tactic. Uh, is no longer really is available, and it's something that just in September Putin was saying that he was going to going to do this, and now it's somewhat off the table. So whoever sabotaged those pipelines, uh, it was not helpful to that Russian strategy.
1: Do you have any thoughts about who might have done that?
0: Uh, well, I don't know. There are a, a number of uh, of actors, but the. Claim that it was Russia that sabotaged its own pipelines uh, seems to kind of um, uh, it seems to be very non-obvious. Let's put it that way, because it uh, they were Russia's own pipelines, and just in September we had Putin publicly saying. Uh, that that gas was available if uh, Europe eased off on its sanctions and moved toward making peace. And just a few weeks later, those pipelines are blown. So uh, it, it certainly doesn't seem very rational on Russia or Putin's part.
1: Right. Well, we'll have to see how that all develops. But that's it for today's episode. I want to thank Marcus Stanley of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft for sharing his insights about recent developments in Americans' attitudes towards the Ukraine-Russia war. Uh, look for us on the new books network and remember to subscribe and rate international horizons on spotify and apple podcasts i want to thank osvaldo mena aguilar for his technical assistance as well as to acknowledge duncan mckay for sharing his song international horizons as the theme music for the show this is john torpey saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of international horizons